This podcast is brought to you by the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Welcome to the War Studies Podcast. My name is Kirk Allen. What is the future of security and development in an uncertain world? On the 7th and 8th of March, students from KCL's Conflict Security and Development MA course in the Department of War Studies and students from the International Development Department in the School of Global Affairs held the 2019 student-led Conflict Security and Development Conference titled Building Stability, Security and Development Futures in an Uncertain World to address this very question. For this conference, students brought together rich and diverse panels of practitioners and experts from government, academia, and the private sector to address many topics and key debates around the future of security and development in fragile states, ranging from private investment and resilience building to the functionality of multilateral organizations and the role of state actors. In this edition of the War Studies Podcast, we are going to hear from Conflict Security and Development MA candidate and conference co-chair Andrea Naranjo and the Conflict Security and Development Program Director, Professor Mats Berdahl, about this year's student-led conference. We first spoke to Andrea Naranjo, focusing on the conference, her role as co-chair, and how this opportunity benefited her MA studies. Welcome to the War Studies Podcast. Can you introduce yourself for us? Hi, thank you for having me. My name is Andrea Naranjo, and I am a current master's student in the Conflict Security and Development Program here at King's. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. So what was your role as part of the CSD conference team? So I am one of two co-chairs for this year's conference. I am the Conflict Security and Development uh, co-chair. Um, my fellow co-chair represents is from the uh, International Development uh, Program. Our roles as co-chairs is to coordinate all of the uh, subcommittees and make sure that everyone is, is, is communicating and kind of working together and that all the moving pieces come together nicely. So what is the purpose of the annual student-led CSD conference? So the purpose of this conference is, this is a, a student-organized conference. Every detail is organized by students. and it. It's really meant for us to uh, engage with these topics and kind of be the ones setting the conversation and discuss um, those topics we're really interested in and kind of have a, an opportunity to engage to some extent in a more practical, current uh, level with the topics we discuss in class. What was it like setting up this conference and then seeing it come to fruition? Well, in one word, it's satisfying. Um, now, kind of looking back and how it it came together, uh, a conference of this scope requires a ton of work. Uh, it's, you know, there's fundraising, advertising, uh, organizing all the venue logistics, creating a website, um, deciding on the topics for each panel, as well as inviting and coordinating with the speakers. And so it does require a ton of work from every member of the uh, committee and everyone doing their part. All of this on top of being a full-time student. So it, it's to see it all come together, to have received such positive feedback, it's it, it made it all worth it. 
Yeah, we, we heard from many academics that this was probably one of the best conferences that they've seen in a while held here at King's. And this being uh, implemented by, by students and, and planned by students, I mean, it, it's very, very impressive. You mentioned that you're also a full-time MA student. Uh, how do you feel that this experience benefited your studies and your career going forward? I, I think it definitely adds a, a different level of engagement with uh, with the topics. Um, well, you know, most of these courses are very practical. It's still it's 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 a different thing to kind of be discussing and to hear. Um, those kind of at the top of their field discussing kind of the current issues and the current uh, trends and the, the the way they see things moving forward um, kind of in a in, in a different context it definitely adds a, another layer to the debate and I think it's also an extraordinarily valuable experience uh, I, I know personally it's it's been a fantastic learning opportunity just for some of those practical skill sets of organizing something like this. I'm really glad I got involved with this. Also, I was, I was curious, what are your, uh, I guess, focuses in the study of conflict security and development? If I know it might be early to say, but yeah, what are the things in conflict security and development that interest you? Um, I'm particularly interested in the post-conflict transitions, um, peace negotiations and post-conflict transitions. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm originally from Colombia, so right now the t- what we're studying speaks very much to every every one of my interests and kind of seeing that, that how do you rebuild a society after conflict, that go through these DDR processes, um, these uh, like transitional justice uh, mechanisms. It's, it's fascinating. Thank you again for speaking with us, Andrea Naranjo. Next, we spoke with Professor Mats Berdahl broadly about the conference and a few of the topics addressed on the panel he chaired on the future of overseas aid. Welcome to the War Studies Podcast. Can you introduce yourself for us? Yes, I'm uh, Mats Berdahl, and I'm Professor of uh, Security and Development in the Department of uh, War Studies, and I'm also Director of the Conflict Security and Development Program. In addition to that, I'm also the MA Course Director for the uh, Program in Conflict and uh, Security. Excellent. Thank you for joining us. What can you tell us about this year's annual student-led CSD conference? Well, this conference uh, has decided to focus on the subject of, of building stability uh, and the subtitle is Security and Development Futures in an Uncertain World. And I think the, the operative phrase there is an, as an uncertain world. Uh, in many ways, the conference revisits issues and themes that have been with us for the past you know, 20, 25 odd years about how to build stability, how to build peace after conflict but it seeks to take account of important changes in the international system, Um, a period of geopolitical flux, a period of rising nationalism, a period of individual countries being concerned to demonstrate that whatever they do is in the national interest, Uh, and also um, a conference taking place against the backdrop of experiences which have, to put it mildly, been decidedly mixed. And I'm thinking here specifically of the very long-running involvement in Afghanistan, which uh, came to an end uh, as far as NATO was concerned in 2014, 
but which is still ongoing, but where there is very little evidence of either peace or stability having built. And this year, um, our students on the Conflict Security and Development Program have put together an extremely interesting program looking at, at key themes arising out of this uh, particular uh, uh, context, including the future of, of private actors and private investment in conflict zone, including the future of overseas development aid, but also the important question of um, the role and significance of new actors emerging onto the uh, development scene. I'm thinking of uh, contributors to development aid from the from the global south, and in particular the growingly growing important role of, of China. So we cover a broad range of issues, but we've got a, an excellent um, uh, uh, range of speakers and panels to look at some very, very topical issues. So this year's conference has focused largely on private finance in fragile states and the future of overseas aid. I understand that your focus is broadly on the UN and the use of force, but what do you see as the benefit of international investment in stabilizing post-conflict societies? Well, I think the whole discussion uh, about the role of businesses and private investment in in conflict zone has always been a a slightly polarized one uh, by which I mean that there are those who take the view that almost by definition um, any any private business that approaches a conflict zone is a problem because they are there fundamentally to serve their own particular interest and particularly the profit motive and then you have at the other extreme those who think that the only way to make any genuine progress in providing aid in those um, uh, fragile settings, if you like, is to stimulate um, private initiative and, 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 and individual entrepreneurship. I think what this conference tries to do and has tried to do on this panel is to try to get, a, if you like, a, a balanced or a more nuanced view, um, recognizing obviously some of the problems that might come along with private involvement, you know, short horizon spans and so on and so forth, but also recognizing that stimulating uh, local economic activity through, you know, private investment is potentially very, very promising and important. So this is what really the, the discussion has been about. And we had in our panel on this, um, you know, very interesting perspectives, uh, bringing out both what you might call, you know, clearly positive experiences where um, private investment has tapped into an understanding of the local economy of conflict, has encouraged entrepreneurial activity, uh, but also I think at the other end, um, skepticism has been expressed about what might be seen as more, you know, the predatory, if you like, interests of, of external actors in zones of conflict. And I think, again, what students have tried to do this year is to try to to bring different perspectives to bear on this on this long-running debate of, of what businesses and what the private sector can do in zones of conflict. How could international investment and aid work alongside UN efforts? I think when it comes to, you mentioned UN efforts, I think, uh, and if we talk about UN efforts in, in zones of ongoing conflict, I think the, the key challenge, uh, increasingly recognized and accepted by most people, is that we need to try to find what you might call you know, lasting uh, political solutions to some of these conflicts where we are engaged. 
and ideally not just lasting political solutions, but obviously lasting inclusive political solutions, um, which very often ends up meaning some kind of, of, of bargain between um, uh, political elites uh, about a new kind of dispensation where um, there is a, a reduced level of, of violence uh, as a basis for building something more long-term and more constructive. Now, um, in an ideal world, um, development aid, um, the role of private investors should reinforce that kind of meaningful process towards a lasting political solution to some of these conflicts. Um, so as much coordination as possible, as much um, of an effort to ensure that these initiatives are mutually reinforcing, um, yeah. That is really the the, the challenge, uh, strategic coherence, if you like. But it is often very difficult to do um, for a variety of reasons, bureaucratic, donor politics, and otherwise. But but the idea is to is to get a real sense of how you can build something that is uh, an inclusive political settlement that is underpinned then by meaningful peace building, state building, and reconstruction initiatives. And right. and this is what we've you know, often struggle to do, but it remains a very formidable challenge. Now, on the panel that you chaired, uh, another topic that was addressed was the future of using multilateral organizations in providing aid and stability. Uh, as states appear to be increasingly pulling out of multilateral organizations and are growing less likely to use multilateral tools, um, what might this tell us about the future of stabilization efforts generally? Well, I think um, the panel to which you refer was, a, was an interesting one because what came out was um, what you just mentioned, that there is evidence of a, if you like, decline in the commitment and belief to multilateralism, um, that uh, increasingly countries... Uh, for whatever reason, feel they have to emphasize that whatever they do, whether it's in security policy or development policy, has to be justified in the national interest. Uh, and that um, if you cannot demonstrate that what you do, how you provide aid, how you provide security assistance ends in the national interest, then, you know, it shouldn't be pursued. Now, there was some pushback against this on the panel from those representing the UK government in particular, saying that in reality um, there doesn't have to be a conflict between what is in a national interest and what's also in the interest of the of the target state. Uh, and there was also a, a point being made that um, it isn't necessarily a rejection of multilateralism uh, as much as a willingness to explore various forms of providing assistance, you know, a kind of a variable geometry people are talking about. We shouldn't be wedded to either one or another approach. Uh, you can support NGOs, you can support private investors, you can support multilateral institutions, but that the fundamental uh, commitment to, if you like, multilateral institutions as a, as a value in its own right is still is still there. But it is true that, you know, we don't, it's, it doesn't take a, it's not rocket science to look around and see that this move in favor of whether it is America first or this or that first um, has tended to lead to a, an emphasis among governments that whatever we do has to be justified in terms of the national interest. 
and that this sometimes then um, distorts you know funding priorities um, uh, whereas what we need to do and there was someone on the panel who insisted that we have to be you know focus above all on the sort of humanitarian principles when it comes to this it has to be according to need it has to be provided um, impartially uh, and there should be no sort of political bias in it. Those are the things that should drive the particular process. So there was an interesting discussion around this whole issue of whether we are living in the world where increasingly uh, aid and development assistance um, are designed um, and provided in a sense um, uh, to justify in domestic political concerns and national interest. I think again um, the answer is probably, to some extent, quite context-specific. Um, we had a reference in a discussion uh, about Yemen, where one of our panelists made it very clear. He was very honest and said that, you know, in many ways, the UK is complicit in terms of the support it provides for the Saudi regime, um, while on the other hand, it is trying to provide <coughs> humanitarian assistance. Uh, there is a what he called a paradox so that needs to be resolved. Um, but it is an ongoing discussion. I think um, aid has always, to some degree, whether openly or not openly, been provided with some form of strings attached. Um, it might be more explicit now, but it is very important, I think, that we, we have a, a clear sense of what the core values underlying the provision of aid are, which, after all, is according to need and not just according to need, but also what is likely to prove sustainable in, in, in the long run. Lastly, do states have national interests in aiding unstable or fragile societies? No, it's a good, it's a very good question. I mean, I think, you know, famously back in 2001 um, or 2002, the, the United States government declared that from now on, the major threat to international security and indeed to the United States was not from conquering armies but from collapsing states. Uh, so they therefore decided that, you know, fragile states uh, are now in many ways a priority. But the reason they were a priority, they felt, was because they could be an incubator for various kinds of transnational threats to the US and to the international system, you know the whole, you know, counter-terrorism kind of perspective. Uh, and therefore, they responded in a way to what they saw as a problem was fail-safe. But I think you could make a very powerful argument that the way in which they defined and understood the problem of fragile states did not in any way diminish the sort of threat they, they effectively posed either to the United States or the international system. Um, they... You could argue, and I think it is true, that if you're going to deal with failed state in a meaningful long-term sense, it is to, to address what, again, in a cliche might be called some of the root causes of state failure in security, um, build more stable polities in which levels of overt levels of violence are reduced, um, rather than, for example, simply uh, targeting um, what you might feel to be the main uh, threat within those states, whether those are terrorist groups or networks or so and so forth. So in a way, you know, everyone is, is, is concerned about fragile states, but sometimes for, you know, different reasons. Um, and I think it's important to understand, first of all, what we mean by fragile states, um, what we mean by state failure, whether indeed that term is useful at all, 
because very often what we call failed states uh, uh, are not failed in the sense that you know order has entirely collapsed but a new and alternative and different order has emerged governed by a very different logic perhaps from what we are used to but it doesn't really constitute what is sometimes referred to as an ungoverned space and you have to understand uh, those new orders before you begin to engage with them and, and, and challenge them so I think there's a real sort of conceptual challenge of understanding what you know state failure is um, Many countries now, as I said, intervene because they feel you know state failure is a challenge. But what kind of challenge is it? How does it need to be tackled? What's the best way of addressing it? And I think, for example, insofar as the so-called global war on terror was a response to state failure, it wasn't a particularly effective or successful one. I mean, I referred earlier to Afghanistan, uh, where where we started out in 2003 with a NATO ISAF force deploying in order to extend um, the authority of the central government to the whole of the country in order to build, in theory and on paper, or what they call would be a modern Western-looking democratic state, uh, but which today, after an enormous amount of um, funds spent, long-running intervention, and above all, huge amount of, 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 of human lives lost, we have a profoundly unstable and deeply insecure uh, Afghanistan with very, very little progress having been made towards a meaningful addressing of the original issues. So we need to think very, very carefully about what it is we want to achieve in these uh, in these failed states and whether indeed outside intervention is the best way of going about it, whether we could instead perhaps empower indigenous forces that are better suited at dealing and addressing with the challenges. So that, you know, we have quite a lot to learn, I think, still in this area. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt Spurdall. My pleasure. Anytime. That concludes this edition of the War Studies Podcast. If you like this podcast, don't forget to like, comment, and share it wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, for more news and information on upcoming events, like the Conflict Security and Development Conference, please visit our website at kcl.ac.uk forward slash war studies or follow us on twitter thank you for listening <laughs>